0: You think about the people you in, interact with, relationships, love life and children and parenting and family, but it does show out in business. So any insecurities I have can show out in business. And I know that there's sometimes my insecurities have made me not push forward in certain things, even though I'm extremely cocky and confident in other ways when it comes to business.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Revenue Leadership. Today, you have the absolute pleasure of talking to Akwa Jimphi. She's the founder and managing director of The British Blacklist. If you don't know what that is, where you been? Seriously, it's the premier online global home for African caribbean British creative professionals, both on screen and on the stage. In sound and literature, up front and behind the scenes is like a complete holistic view of the entertainment industry for black professionals in the UK. It's been around for about a decade or so and they do amazing work. And that's really what I want to delve into today with Aqua. To understand the history, the origin story of how this came about, what was her inspiration. But we also like to delve into her own journey to get to where she got to. From getting kicked out of school, to learning to let go of something that you love. She used to be a sick hairdresser, working for the likes of Nami Campbell, Miss Dynamite on video shoots editorial campaigns like Hugo Boss and Jaeger working for magazines like Vogue, yet she made the decision to let go of that. It's something that's not always easy to do. We talk about not living out your dreams, we talk about fearlessness, we talk about the importance of staying grounded and working hard. We talk about why she is not a leader. I do not agree with her, but she lets me know she's a driver, not a leader. There's a good distinction between both of those two things. This is an episode you do not want to miss. So strap in, let's enjoy this. Akwa Genfi gets busy. And today we're going to delve into the story that she doesn't talk about that much. You know, she likes to do what she's doing and just hide behind the scenes. So we're going to shine that limelight on her because she deserves it. How are you doing?
0: I'm fine, thank you. It's always when people list the word that I do, am like, do I do that? Am I right? <laughs> but yes. Hello. How are you? What's cracking?
1: That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and and to be fair, that's not even everything that you get involved with. That's just some of the things that you get involved with. And I was interested to learn, what was the dream when you were a teenager, before the hairstyle, before you went into that side of things? What was the dream before that?
0: I think when I was little, it keeps coming back to me. I think I wanted to be an art teacher or an English teacher. Those are the two skills that I was good at. And it came to me that I always said I wanted to be a presenter like Oprah. I forget that when I talk about where my seeds of inspiration came from, but I was very heavily into Oprah. There was a time during the nineties when you had Ricky Lake, Oprah Winfrey, Sally, Jesse Raphael. Raphael I remember
1: um,
0: Haraldo, before Herardo turned into this mad right-wing person that he is today, or allegedly he was Gerardo, the talk show host. And then he had Montel Williams, not Montel Jordan, Montel Williams. So you had these presenters, and then led by the Queen, Oprah, before Ellen took over. So I was really into Oprah and her. I don't know. So present. I said I wanted to be a presenter. I say it all the time, but I never really believed it. But yeah. So English teacher, art teacher, and then at some point I started saying I wanted to be a presenter.
1: Wow. So do you have like mad art skills?
0: Yes, I'm not even faking it. <laughs> I was a really good drawer. Like when, yeah, me and my brother were really good at fine art. I'm very good at copying lightness. So I was, in my mind, I was going to go to Paris and do portraiture. It was a lie, but you know, that was what I thought.
1: Do you still tap into that energy anymore or that was way back in the day?
0: No, I don't have the time. Like I I, I always envisioned buying an easel and sitting down doing art. I'm like, when do I have time to sit down and act like (laughs) I've got... I can do looking off into the distance, doing art. I cannot. I went to a Bridgerton experience the other day and part of, oh, I don't even know I can talk about it. (laughs) I mean, it's open to the public where they like take your camera, your phones from you because they don't want you to spoil the moment for people going in. I'm sure, you know, people, you know, I'm sure I can talk about it. Yeah. So they're part of the experience. You get to stand in front of an easel and do some art. And I was jumped at the chance. I was like, oh, my one chance. And it wasn't the best, but my, Person I went with, like, oh my god, you can draw! I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, I can.
1: Yes, one of many talents. So, how did the, the art dream, presenting dream, the music dream, now leading to you stepping into like hairstyling or hairdressing that you moved into in your teenagers?
0: So I could always do hair, just because I have no idea how, but I could always do hair. So in school, I used to be the person that everyone used to come to to do. You know, everyone's doing all these kind of baby hair stuff. We called them wigglies. And in the 90s, they were a thing. These young kids think they started something, but we had it first. So, yeah, I started off doing wigglies like there'd be girls queuing up and during break time and I'd have their gel pots out and I'd just be doing this, their baby hairs or whatever. And then I think a friend of mine trusted me to cut her hair and another friend of mine used to twist and plait her hair and all that of stuff. So I could always do hair. I don't come from a hair family, but I could just always do hair. And then when I left school, I had no clue what to do because I was that kind of slightly naughty child. But it's more like getting focus and support, you know, like that lack of support in school in that way. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. Followed my friends to college. Did, you know, some sort of stupid course. I did an art course, actually. And I did a maths retake. I ended up getting kicked out because I went to Hammersmith and West London College. And that college for my age was not great because there were boys everywhere and lots of friends and fun everywhere. So why would I go to class? No, I didn't. <laughs> what I would do was play blackjack in the common room from morning till evening and expect to pass my course somehow. So I did get called into the dean. was well, not the Dean. We don't, we,
1: we had, headmaster. head of the college. Yeah, you know? headmaster.
0: And they were like, no love, this is not how you progress. So you can leave. So I was kicked out my first year and my mum obviously being a mum was angry. So she sent me to work with my auntie who had a hairdressers in White City in her flat. She basically worked out of her flat and it was very popular. So she gave me my tools, like the actual groundwork to, of how to do hair formally. So I worked with her, went back to college. Then when I left college, I still didn't know what I wanted to do, even though I did a performing arts course. Again, just copying my friends, but I had no dreams of doing performing arts. I didn't think I was going to do an acting or anything like that. I just did it. I passed that. But then when I left, I didn't know what to do. And the first thing I did was, um, someone said, Oh, this woman's looking for someone to work in a hairdressers. I started working at a hairdressers in Lubbock Grove and that became my job until further notice. So I was doing hair and excelling at it.
1: You wouldn't have just like, where you said, like you were excelling at it. You started getting involved in, in the industry, like styling major, major shows, like Vogue, editorial campaigns, Hugo Boss, all that kind of stuff. How did you go from just working hard in, in the shop and excelling in your craft to that link into the entertainment industry?
0: So I think because the hairdressers was in Labrick Grove. So that's a quite prime position for creatives and stuff in West London at the top. And it was at the top of Portobello Road. So it was a very thriving, creative, buzzy, very multicultural, all worlds collide type place. And where I honed my craft as a hairdresser, people would come through. So I remember, can't remember the like year dates, times and all that type of stuff. I know someone came through and he was like, you're good. Come and do a trial for me for Paris fashion week. So I went along and was like, okay, I'll give it a try. Did the trial. He was like, you're good. Took me to Paris with his team. And that was the first time I'd ever done a, like a fashion show. I think that was my first foray into that space. And he was like, no, you're very good because I did the work and then I was supporting everybody else. Because like with fashion shows, you have a hair team and then you'll have like 20, 30, 40 models, depending on how big the fashion show is. The designer was Castel Bajac. I don't know if he's still around today. Parisian designer. And so we had a bunch of models coming through and you've got to be quick. You've got to be like, the turnaround is quick. It's as manic as you can expect it you got, they, cause got to go through hair. they got to go through makeup. they got to go through wardrobe, then the fashion show. So it's all very hectic. And he just liked the way I kept cool. I was a great assistant. And then when we got back, he was like, yeah, I'd love for you to be my assistant. I'd love for you to do more with me. There was a white guy called Jeremy Healy. He's a music producer. Jeremy Healy and Amos, they were a music duo, like some house music. And I think Jeremy, he liked, for some reason, went for a stage of doing cameros and he came through the sh- salon. And so I was camering his hair. And I remember he took me to Top of the Pops to do his hair. And I think I did a photo shoot. So it's just people that came through the shop saw that I was good. And then I'd get to do random things. And that was my foray into the wider industry. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to go off and be like a free, I wanted to take it up and just do high level hair. It was at like music videos, photo shoots and stuff like that. Vogue came later as I'd already started my media career, but those initial things like, you know, Jeremy Healy doing Paris fashion show, I think I assisted, I can't remember who or how, I assisted doing Jodie Kidd's hair. She was like a supermodel back in the nineties. She did a photo shoot with Piers Bosnan at Sting's house, random, weird. But those are the things that kind of fed into my development as a hairdresser.
1: Wow. And there's something I love around, you talked about you being good at what you do and that's what helped you get recognized. And a lot of times people have aspirations to do amazing things but they're never even focusing on the craft they have. And they're not focusing on being good at that thing that they already have. They're just always thinking about the next thing, the next, and the next thing. And you just kind of shown that when you're good at what you do, people still recognise you. And that's what opens up doors for you as well. And you actually end up being in Paris. So it wasn't for art, but you were in Paris.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My dreams have been definitely realised in a very roundabout way. Yeah, I don't even think I've made that correlation before. It is about honing your craft. I do say to everyone that And I'm not perfect. I don't say I don't say it with, you know, blind arrogance or ignorance. I'm not perfect at anything that I do, but I was a very good hairdresser and it's just within me. I think everyone's got a skill in them. Right. And I think you lean into that, especially because I left school not knowing what I wanted to do. And I think that's really some people stress about it if you don't know what to do. But I think there's years where you can find yourself. But you must lean into those years on what, in my opinion, what you're good at. Because that's the thing that will take you forward no matter what, while you're trying to figure it out, just lean on what you're good at. And I always say that to young people in my space that if you don't know what you want to do, just lean on what you're good at. Because I could do hair, be a hairdresser. I never dreamed of being a hairdresser. And there got to a point when I was doing hairdressing, like I know there's more in me. I have to do more than, and I'm not reducing the technique or the skill or the creative brilliance that goes into hairdressing. I knew I had more in me. So, but I said, whilst I'm figuring it out, This is what I can do with my eyes closed. And also English, when it got to a point where English, where I had to make a decision about my career going forward after I had my daughter or after I found out I was pregnant. Again, I thought, well, what can I do? English. I don't struggle with that. And I have an interest in media. So those are the things that will take me forward. Because I think I grew up with my mum. I always use my mum as an example. She came to the UK. Her dad sent her here from Ghana and said, you will do this. But so she did what she was told. She was a nurse, but she had dreams of being doing catering. And stuff like that. And she never did that. So though the nursing has served her well, you get a good pension and stuff like that. And we never wanted for anything, essentially. Well, I did want for stuff like name brand stuff, but my mum wasn't having it. But when talking about the practicals, like food, warmth, shelter, I had that. And we never worried in that respect. That was all good. But her creative spirit was kind of knocked because she didn't get a chance to do what she wanted to do. I always had that I'm going to do what I want to do. And in that process, what is it I'm good at? And those kind of things tied in, luckily for me. Because not everything that you're good at is what you want to do, but at least those are the things that can make you money and help you survive. And you don't have to put much effort into doing it.
1: Yeah, some real good advice though. I think a lot of times it's I'm sure that age, like what am I gonna do? Do I lean into what my parents might want me to do or society wants to do, or do I even feed my grist seat and figure it out along the way, knowing that I don't have to have everything else set in stone because life keeps on unraveling and more things keep on getting revealed when you're moving in a particular direction. How did you um stay, I'm gonna say focused, or did you stay focused? When as a young person, you're in all this environment, you're in Paris, you're in Sting's house doing Jordy Kid. Like you've been exposed to a lot of celebrity live celebrity culture. Did you manage to stay grounded?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't because I, th- I suppose sometimes in context, it's not like, like Paris Fashion Week. It wasn't glamorous. It was like I was an assistant. I remember staying in, I can't remember where we stayed. We stayed in the hotel. It wasn't trashy for sure. But I remember being hungry and not having much to eat because the day was long and then everywhere was closed. So I remember, I think, looking, trying to find something to eat and I couldn't find anything. Then we left in the morning. So I didn't see Paris. I literally, we got to, I can't remember, I don't know which way it went, whether we went to the venue, did the work, came back to the hotel. The next day we're back on the train back to London. So that easily, like your minion working for the greater good of the show, then you come back home that's that stings house yes that was fun but then you're here to do a job and i think you recognize you're here to do a job and it's not about you you're not the star so what am i going to do to be gassed am i going to go and be like i don't know how, i don't know what i could do or how i'd lose my head i mean in the moment you might be like oh my god but you've got to compose yourself because you've got to do the job but in the end the people like i've worked with some people i've been in the presence of some people and when you as it, as time goes on you recognize that they're human. You recognize that we all eat, go to the loo, sleep. You know, we all have the same kind of issues and we're all made up in the same way. So that star thing does go away pretty quickly once you've been doing this a while. It doesn't mean say you're not in awe of anyone who don't respect their work and you don't feel like, oh, my God, I definitely had that starstruck moment when I had a time doing Naomi Campbell's hair. I wasn't myself. <laughs> I was, you know, when you're in my hairdressing chair, I'm the boss. But when I, at the moment, the time that I did Naomi Campbell, she was definitely, I was definitely like, I am even scared. <laughs> there was nowhere Cause I'm like, my friends will say like, my clients will say, no, nah, she's a tyrant in the chair. My chair, my rules, keep your head straight. You know, I'm the boss of the chair. Naomi Campbell was the boss of the chair. And that's all I'll say. Like, so I, but that's because I was so in awe. So I, I do, I'm not saying I don't get gassed or anything like that. And definitely if I, you know, in my hairdressing days, I wanted to get to the levels of maybe doing Beyonce's hair or Oprah's hair, like those type of things. I can't imagine that I'd be like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. But if you want to keep your job as well, you can't be gassed. And that's why I didn't stay working with Naomi Campbell, for example, because one, I was on a different path journey because I was British Blacks were still going and building and I couldn't dedicate, this is when I started to realize that I can't do, I did hair for a very long time Mm. as a side hustle. When I was building and doing stuff out external with British Blacklist and when I worked at the BBC, I still had hair clients and stuff like that. Especially when it got to a point where being a personal hairstylist to someone, I couldn't focus, I couldn't dedicate and be the excellent hairdresser that I was. And when that became very apparent when I was doing Naomi Campbell's hair and a few other clients. I was like, yeah, I can't do the two. So you have to step away. But that's just another story anyway.
1: Where did the inception of the British Blacklist come from?
0: So British Blacklist came from long lost left hairdressing as a main career. I'd studied, basically because I became a mother, I realised I couldn't be around the world, globe-tossing hairdresser, doing famous celebrities' hair, which is what I wanted to do. I had to keep myself grounded to be focused on being a mum. So I studied, did journalism, worked at the BBC for a few years, or for a very long time. And during my time at BBC, I always had my eye on what's going on in the black world, because that's my interest. I'm very black. Everything about me is black, 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 culture, entertainment, everything. So uh, I I thought my dream was also have my own magazine. I loved the Source magazine growing up. That was my, that's my Bible. So I always had dreams of having my own version. So I don't know, there's a bunch of things coming together and realizing that, that one thing that stuck out was there's no visibility or not enough visibility on black creatives who I knew was doing a lot of stuff. And in 2010, 11, when I started to have the seeds of what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. Black talent wasn't, especially UK black talent, wasn't getting the shine it is getting today for sure. So I was like, I need to create something that visualizes that. And that's where this, that's a very, very truncated version of why I started to think about doing something like the British Blacklist. I'm inspired by IMDb, the internet movie database. I thought, okay, let me create something that showcases the talents of British black creatives who work across the arts. And that was in like 2010 into 2011, launched in 2012. And that's literally it. It's just a way to visualize and celebrate. Black creative, that's always, I've always had an interest in what's going on in the culture, media, Black media, Black culture, from an entertainment perspective.
1: When you think about now where there's a higher level of representation talked about and displayed, especially with social media and that kind of stuff, in 2010, 2012, when you finally launched, it wasn't the case. So what was that journey like for you? Stepping into a world that is, especially in the UK, non-existent. Like it was, there was nothing really available. I mean, we've got the voice paper. That was, that's really what I can think about. So what was it like making that decision to step into that world and grow something out of this?
0: I didn't think of it like that. I just said, I'm going to do it. I just didn't think, I didn't think of it as, oh gosh, no one else is doing it. No, I thought no one else was doing it. And I was confused. I was like, I, na- I actually rushed the launch, not rushed the launch. I, it took a year to build because I did it as a database. British Blacklist started as a database and which has relaunched recently. And then around it is editorial. What people really know it from at the moment is more the editorial side, but it actually started as the, the whole thing is a database. And I was like, no one's done it before. I can't believe no one's done it. Why has no one done it? I'm going to do it. But it was never in a point, a point of thinking like, oh, <sighs> it's no one's done it, but not because no one's done it. It's, I, just, it I, I don't know if I'm explaining to you how you've asked me the question. It wasn't how you asked me the question. It's more like, I'm just going to do it. I didn't have any reservations about being the, like, is it something that I shouldn't do because no one's doing it? It's just like, I'm going to do it anyways. So I've got an idea. I kind of, if I have an idea, I'm going to do it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't.
1: That's a very, I'm just going to go for it kind of attitude without really, course, there's risk involved, but not letting the fear kind of stop you. Was that developed with your mom and growing up and everything else? Or where did that side of you come from?
0: I have no idea. I generally have no idea. I'm, maybe I'm stubborn. I don't know. I, you've stumped me. I don't, I don't know where that particular comes from because I just think well, if there's no barriers to entry, why not do it? And I'm not like, it hasn't been easy. Like this, it's hard and I'm doing it myself now. So it's throwing up all sorts, but I wanted to do it and it worked kind of. And it hasn't, I haven't been stopped from doing it. I don't know. I, I, I don't know why I'm like this, but I'm going to do it. I think it's my thing of saying, I think there's a thing like, it, for my mum. It's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't know why that stuck with me so much because Some people fall into their parents' patterns anyway. But I don't know why I'm so gung-ho and I'm going to do what I want to do. Maybe that's the effect. Because maybe because growing up, my mum who worked so hard, I always had that element of regret. I think that's sat with me a lot. So I don't want regret because I think life is hard and shitty enough as it is within you living with regret when you get to a certain age and you're saying, I wish I did that and I wish I did this. So maybe that's what it is. I have a fear of not living out my dreams and I'm a very in my head Dreamy person, and even though I don't always recognise when my dream's being realised, as in hindsight, like oh yeah, like you said, me wanting to be in Paris, oh yeah, I went to Paris that way. Oh yeah, when I left um, doing hairdressing to go into media, I missed. It took a long time for me to, to let go of doing hair, and I loved doing fashion shows, and I really missed that. I wouldn't be able to do that be, as a young mum, but then it later on in my career, someone said, "Hey, do you want to be doing hair for?" So I worked with a hair team, and so whenever I had time, I'd go and do London Fashion Week. And so my dreams are always realised in different ways. And that's another thing I say to people when they ask: it's like it happens, maybe not in a linear way, but it comes full circle. I I went back to doing hair when I had to leave it formally, and I was quite sad. But then I, you know, could do it at my own leisure as a freelancer. I don't know. I don't know if I've answered your question, but yeah,
1: yeah, I've answered my question. Yeah, I've answered my question. I think there's that tenacity that you said earlier on as well, where. You've seen what happened with your mom. is like, okay, I'm just going to go there. I'm going to feel my curiosity. And it's that innate in you, like, I see something there. I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, just going to kind of go for it. You said around you even making that switch from doing hair, which you love, to starting to create TPB. Was there... Well, generally speaking, are there filters or ways that you process when you make a decision to go from one thing to the other one? Because letting go of something that you've loved doing. Yes, you had a daughter, so you have to put her her needs first. But even that, that's still not an easy switch. You can't just be like, boom, I'm going to go for it. You've done this for like 15, 20, 20 years. That's a, that's a massive part of who you are. That's part of your identity sometimes. How did you make that move and decide it was time to let go of that completely and go into this?
0: It was just literally because that was a practical, it's practicality because I knew when I found out I was pregnant. So I was twenty-two because I had her when I was twenty-three. So I wasn't super young, but I was young, and I had my mind. Okay, so I'm going to do hairdressing. I still didn't know what I wanted to do though because I think I think, and this is now going back how many years trying to remember what my mindset was. Like I said, I had think I planned to do it bigger and better and doing more. So I would have naturally evolved into doing more music videos, becoming maybe I, I say a celebrity stylist just to make it makes sense, but, or I could have been working on film. So I, I would have possibly gone down that route. I still wasn't entirely sure that wasn't mapped out when I got pregnant. I still wasn't entirely sure. So when I got pregnant and I was fostered as a child, as many African, well, mostly African children were during the eighties and it was sixties, seventies and eighties, mostly. So I'm of the generation that were fostered to white families. So I, and I think that had an effect on me as well before I came back home to my mum. So that kind of sense of having to stay with people and not be in your comfort of your home. And when I found out I was pregnant, I knew there's things that you also kind of want to instill in your children and anything that you suffered in your childhood, you kind of don't want to, well, most you're we have all your wits about you and you're healed. You don't want to impart those things that you went through on the children that you have. You want your children to have a better life than you did. So I knew that I was very, very adamant that my child wouldn't have to feel like I'm not present in her life. So that was the practicality that I can't be, doing long hours on shoots and not being present for my child, that could cause some issues, right? So it was practicality that helped me transition from knowing that I was pregnant, knowing that my career had to change, and then I'd have to leave the shop. And then going into media and studying and having a nine-to-five, because I had always said when I was younger, I'm never going to do a nine-to-five. And it's those type of things that you don't realise what you're prophesizing when you're younger. But I was always like, I'm never going to have a nine-to-five impossible. I'm never going to work in an office. I had friends that worked in offices and I was like, this is disgusting. What is that? It doesn't make any sense. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, why would you work in an office nine to five and doing like, desk work? Though that's what ended up happening. I worked because I did my journalism degree and then I actually did a year at Channel U, which was brilliant for me. That was amazing. And then in my mind, I was going to go and work on radio at One Extra, but then you, the transition isn't as easy as that. And again, I realized that I'd have to offer some free time, and I've got a child, and I've got to pay bills, and so I can't do that. So going like what when I say free time, I'd have to maybe sit around one extra volunteer, and you know be available. Those kind of days where it's a bit more easy to just walk into, not walk in, but the mood at that time or the climate at that time was I could possibly offer lots of free hours, going in, hanging out, offering my services, and eventually maybe get my way in and, and apply for a job there. I didn't have time for that because I was a child. So I had to find a job. But then someone said, oh, there's a job going at BBC. You should apply. And I got the job. And that's what kept me at BBC in a nine to five, which I said I'd never do. But it, you know, it it was good training for whatever. It was always practicality. And, but also with hairdressing, I never let let it go completely until maybe about four years ago, possibly. I can't remember what my last client was, but I was doing alongside it. Like I said, I got, you know, scouted to do fashion shows. I would do, you know, Miss Dynamite was one of my personal hair clients as well. And I did her videos, I did Shiesty videos. I did the Vogue shoot with Naomi Campbell. And that's where I met her, to be her personal stylist. So there were things that I was doing alongside it. And I had home clients as well. And that's when I actually went through a transition where my want to be a better parent and a good mother kind of came into conflict. Because I would possibly do a nine to five and then come home and maybe have three or four hair clients because I'm so used to that. And then I realized I was neglecting my daughter as a parent. so. I had to make a decision to stop all of that. So there's things, it was never easy. It wasn't an easy, like, oh, I was so like sensible and practical. It hasn't always been a smooth, easy transition from career to career at all.
1: Life never is. And I think that's, that's why I love the realness of what you're just actually sharing. Because there are times when people can look at people's journey and you see stuff written down on paper And it looks like it's very linear and it's been very smooth sailing and it's gone all the way through. But like I said, there's so much happening behind the scenes where you're dealing with that change. You're thinking about being a mother and how you want to show up as a parent, how you want to, like you said, make sure that the hurts that you had from your past doesn't come through to your child and break some other cycles. And you're still navigating as a human being because you're also growing. And there's all those different things that you don't tend to hear about. But you just describing it that way just shows how, the journey is never never smooth. It's never linear. It's ups and downs and ebbs and flows, but it's still been how you've managed to get to where you got to. And there's still so much more to come, which is why it's so important to hear people like you sharing that journey. You mentioned being or healing some of the hurts from the past. You just talked about it briefly, but I was curious, how was that healing process for you? Because that's another element that we, like you said, a lot of Africans in particular, African-Caribbeans go through there's trauma, there's emotions from when, when we're younger that we don't always heal from and that can seep into our lives as we up as adults. But you were very intentional when you said, I've healed from the past. And that really stood out to me. And I was curious about that.
0: I should remove that. Not healed. No, I don't think we're ever fully healed. I definitely, I, it's on my to-do list, get therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still now, it's still on my to-do list. It keeps getting pushed down. What? How, why? And, oh, just because I'm busy. It's that thing. So I'm not going to, that's what I'm saying. That's why I said, let me remove that. I'm not healed. But when I, when I said I'm healed in that respect, it's more like I think there's different stages in your life where you can you resolve that part about yourself and then new things come up and it's working out that. So things that, as a parent, going into be, like being a mother, I'm like, okay, so there's things that I don't want to inflict on my child. And like I said, being different places because my, the reason why my mum worked, she was a single mum, she worked to keep me and, you know, me and the family, going. So, but as a result, like I said, I was fostered twice and that's caused some issues for me personally. And then as an adult, having maybe a mum that was always working, the disconnect between us is real, was was real because we're, we're very close now. So there was a disconnect, but on top of being fostered. So those are the things I recognize. When I say heal, there's things that I recognize. And so not everybody recognizes mm. the things that could cause issues in their later True. life. So I'm like, okay, what caused a disconnect between me and my mum was the fact that I wasn't all we weren't always together recognizing that I don't want to put inflect that on my child and I had a daughter I need to know that these kind of things don't work and those I definitely had help I had a child minder she went for a child minder. she definitely had to, you know there was I definitely needed help as a single mum myself but I recognized that what she needed and then when I you know I've said this before in interviews like especially with when we're having conversations as women and women in business when I'm trying to be a super mogul and do all the stuff and then my, I'm recognising, okay, my daughter's at the childminders for too long or I'm coming home and I've got hair clients and my child is like, wants mummy attention. I'm getting ratty. I'm like, no, go and do this and do that. And she's a young age, she needs my attention. It's recognising that, okay, you're displaying things that you said you don't want to do. So how do you rectify that? So, and I'm, I'm a Scorpio, so when we quite know it all and quite internal, I think because of the way I grew up, I internalize my problems a lot. So I resolve a lot of my issues in my head on my own. So that's another reason why I think I'm probably more knowledgeable than a therapist, which is unfounded. So I do recognize things in myself that, okay, this isn't right. What are you doing? How do you sort it out? And that's sort why of, so I'm not healed, but I kind of know how to deal with things that get thrown up and how to practically deal with them. But I still believe I could do with someone who's expert and qualified To help me with further tools because it throws up in i mean you think about the people you interact with relationships love life and children and parenting and family but it does show out in business so any insecurities i have can show out in business and i know that there's sometimes my insecurities have made me not push forward in certain things even though i'm extremely cocky and confident in other ways when it comes to business it can all be a bit messy in a like i might be confident here but actually am I underselling myself? Cause I don't really value myself because of all the stuff that's not resolved. You get what I'm saying? So all these things play out, but I recognize them. And so try and act with this in mind. So not healed healing. healing. And I definitely need to go and talk to somebody Yeah, to finish it all off.
1: Yeah. Cause you've already started on uh, like I said, that recognition piece is, is massive. Something people run away from, which is sitting within themselves, to really examine what's really going on, how things are showing up. So you've already started on that journey. So, like you said, it's a, it's a healing process, which sometimes takes a lifetime, but being able to have someone externally that can help you complete some of those processes, which you already started, is really, really good. And being able to hold those things tangibly as well, be like, I see this. And how is this playing now? How is it showing up? Are it's business work? Because that's, like I said, there's no separation. We are human beings. We are all together. So different parts of our experiences will show up. Whether it's work, whether it's business, whether it's friendship, whether it's relationship, whatever, they will come out naturally speaking. So being able to recognise that like you do is quite, is quite good. Right now, when you think about TBB, what do you want, well, you think you mentioned your dream big and you being a super mogul. What would you want to see happen with the British breakfast?
0: It just needs to be a recognised brand that gives you the information that I intend you to have and you receive it well. I want it to do the job of visualising and celebrating the work that Black creatives do in the UK primarily. And that is a trusted go-to platform that you trust in the brand. That is a trustworthy brand that does what it says on the tin. We literally just showcasing the talents of Black creatives. And I want that to be the place that everyone comes to to get information on what we're doing and also connecting with each other because I'm very... I, like I said, I'm very black and I don't say that, I say that in jest, but it's, I think growing on, I don't, again, I don't know where these things have come from. My mum is quite tribalistic, but she's not like, you know, she's not a black activist. She's never been that person. My dad is quite tribalistic and he's, maybe he's a bit where I get my political, liberal alternative thinking. I don't know, but I've always been very engaged in what we're doing as black people growing up. It's just been a thing. I don't care about what else is going on. I care about what we're doing, and I care that I really am concerned about the wider notion that we don't value ourselves enough. So I want to bring that. That's what the British Blacks are like: value ourselves because we're actually amazing, and the fact that we've survived so much trauma imposed on us from other people who dare to say that we're not worth f all. I think the world and society does a bit of propaganda on us. So you know, we're quick to say, "Oh, black people are the most hated." I don't think it's necessarily that, but we kind of. Reiterate those phrases and memes and stuff into the world where we just literally, by default, believe the worst in us our, about ourselves. And I think over the years I've had such fun with Black people, such brilliance of Black people. I've witnessed such amazing things from Black people. I think Bridge Black is an extension of that. It's that this is the celebration of what the hell we can do under pressure with no money. Like I did the Bridge Black with no money, and it is is where it is today. It's still not absolutely not where I want it to be financially and on the scale that I want it to grow however it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the excellence or the creative genius of black people and I think that's what it is I want everyone to recognize in ourselves how brilliant we are and the British Black is the conduit to that the vessel that will help you understand that and so that's the dream I have that it's something that people trust for years going forward and they have value in it and just see the understand that yeah we're brilliant
1: You think, do you think about a soundbite around how powerful people are, I think you kind of just said it right there, because I think there is a propaganda that we are so down low and, but the problem is we believe that and we now internalize that propaganda that the world has told us about ourselves, especially in the West. And seeing the work that British Blackness has done over the last number of years in particular, which is shameless. But I mean, if you go through uh, there's the website, the Instagram, whatever, you see so many people, you're like, I never know there were this many people, Black people in the industry, not just in the UK, but in the US, doing amazing things. So you're like, rather oh, that, that person flow. So, and it's great to see in one space because you don't see that. It's normally... You so said that one person here, a year later, another show will come out. Oh yeah, there's another one. So seeing all that together is actually, even from a visual perspective, is it's amazing.
0: Yes, you said <laughs> it. It's not been easy. And I think that's, that was my dream to visualise it. What is going on? Because I didn't know what's going on. I didn't, I left out a big chunk of the inspiration of TVB because I always feel like my story is so long. But what started me on my journey specifically was that we have a culture of Black film and Black music. That we've grown up and uh, for the UK, for us in the UK, it initially was American, African-American stuff. There was a time when h and wasn't, you know, with, it's, it's still around, or even though it was, you know, it was going, it was going, it was coming, whatever, going out into administration or whatever. But when h and was a thing and you'd go into that to look for a DVD and the worst thing that used to piss me off, the thing that used to piss me off is I'd go looking for, I'm going to say coming to America, obviously that's still around, but I'm going to look for a black thing like coming to America. And then they'll be like, oh, it's been deleted. It's no longer around. And I'm like, but this is something in my community that we love so much, but yet for some reason now we can never get it unless it's on bootleg or something and it's gone out of existence. So I think that's what started me on my journey, like ownership and who owns our stories and how can we get ownership of our stories? And so that's what I actually started to do was I thought, let me do something where I can catalogue Every single black film ever made, and have an understanding of who owns it, where to get it from, and it was literally going to be like a service like that, and that's where it started. And it's when I was researching what's out there and who owns it, like which platform, which production company. And when I when I got to the UK, there was barely anything, and it was like literally I found a list on the BFI of ten really old films, and I was like, this can't be right. And then I, because i like, okay, but I know that these people are doing stuff, and that's how it started to evolve where. I have got to do something for the UK, but that's what it was. It was exposing what people are doing and documenting that because we are doing stuff. And it, yes, and actually, when I even when I was researching the British Blacklist, there were so many things I, over the years because I, you know, we've been around and we've been on TV and this kind of renaissance, Black Renaissance, that we visually really know about in the nineties of Amer- American content. In the nineties, we had the same thing going over here. It was maybe a bit more to do with the theatre side, but there's generations before me, before you, before the new generations that have been through this, this black renaissance. And there were loads of like art schools and weekend schools and stuff like that to develop black creatives, but then they slowly disappeared. And then again, we went back to this kind of world where black culture didn't exist and we were pushed to the sidelines. So it's just bringing that back. And what we need to learn from our historical past is that we don't forget and lose sight of the fact that it's about us. With are FUBU, very For Us, By Us, the American brand FUBU. That mantra is the best ever. FUBU, for us, by us. We have to always remember that, and especially when it seems like we're in fashion because, you know, the past couple of years we've been in fashion, but soon black isn't going to be a thing. They're going to have to move on to the next group and it could be working class. It could be disabled people, it could be LGBTQ. And though we intersectionize into those spaces, when the focus is of us, what are we going to do? When we get lulled into a false sense of security and think everything's okay, then we lose all our power again. So we need to have the things like, I definitely look at our American cousins that Though they have their own issues, of course, of racism and separatism and stuff like that, there is a stronger unity in coming together and doing stuff. So we need to do that in the UK. We're very scattered. As you said, it's very here, there, everywhere. We don't know who's doing what. So what you need to do is know who's out there. So we connect. Strength in numbers. It's always strength in numbers. And connect with each other. So that when they decide that we're not in fashion anymore and they've got enough black shows on screen, on stage, enough black books, and stuff like that. We're like, okay, Bunyu, we can do it ourselves. Because also that power of doing it yourself, people respect that as well. My thing is like, black excellence, yeah, you can say black excellence. It's more like, you can't argue with me. I say that to my child. If you're going to argue with me, you know, I'm African, Caribbean, black people. We like respect. There's hierarchy in this thing. <laughs> if you're going to come and argue with me, make sure you shut me up. Don't let me come and break your argument. And that's the same. we've got to apply that. When the industry is saying, oh, no, this is, no, no, I presented you something. Tell me why this project is not viable because we've hit everything to the T. We've got everything you said that you wanted. You're telling us, no, all right, we'll go somewhere else and get more money for it. And we need to be in that kind of position. And we haven't been. The UK specifically and the industry has done very well of siloing us out, making us the only one black person can go forward. There's a generation of black people who were like that. And I don't blame them because I know what it's like trying to survive in a very racist space. But now it's a different thing now. Now there's a bunch of us. we connected. We're coming to you in numbers
1: and say what? That is it. That's like, I was like, I, I ain't even got no something. I'm like, okay. Like. That's the word right there. When you talk about collaboration, when you talk about communities coming together, when you talk about change happening, those are the foundation blocks that you need to have something that's not just going to be short term, but it's going to be long term and it's just going to be standard going forward. Because like you said, even now with everything that's happening right now, the industry is still, especially in the UK, personally, I still think it's still stiff. It's still the doors aren't being flung open or like that. But what you're happening is people are coming together and creating their own thing, like, you know what, bun you we're going to do our thing. We're going to pull our money together, pull our resources together and start to create stuff for ourselves. And then you're going to have to get involved eventually because it's going to be there. And that's what people are buying into anyway. Basically
0: we have to be ready for it. That's all because we haven't, we weren't prepared before. So when the funding stops and the industry turns its back on us, we were not ready. And everyone, and then we had this whole thing like, Oh my God, I think everything makes sense. We have people, the Twitter keyboard warriors. We have everybody, everybody makes sense. But then once we've finished shouting and cussing, and complaining and from the whiners to the actioners to everything. What's the piece? What's the resolve? For me, my resolve was a British blacklist for people. You know, there's other people For Leon brothers, no game. Their answer was, we're going to do our own thing for other people like Ratman for Steve McQueen, everybody, they find a way to do it. Just get on with it. The family crew, we're going to do it ourselves and just, or present something that you cannot argue with. All the black creators out there, they're just doing stuff. Not paying any mind, no mind, you know, Ratman did it with Shiro's story and then turned into Blue's story. All those type of things, we've just got to do it and it's going to take off on, it, on our own back. So many people are doing stuff. And I've just mentioned a few, there's just so many more. You know, just get on with it. But in a way that we're connected, we need to connect with each other.
1: This is exactly what I was saying to you at the start of what came on, where I talk about why it's important to have people like you and your voices heard. Because it's great what you're doing. It's great the Blue Press has been created and you're putting all that out there. But there's a further understanding that people need to have as to why this actually exists and why it's important. And that's something that you've articulated very, very clearly today, which I absolutely appreciate. We talked about your art and you going to Paris. Do you ever take a step back and think when you think about Oprah and Ricky Lake and everything else you talked about at the start, that your art are... Also, stepped into that mold because of what you do now.
0: Yeah, I'd forgotten that I used to say I wanted to be a presenter. I genuinely had forgotten because I, I got so far removed from that kind of. I used to say it a lot, I want to be a presenter. But I think when I used to say it when I was younger, I never believed it. I never really thought I was going to be a presenter. So I just used to say it because it was like a grab thing. I've spoken a lot of what I said as a child into existence without knowing that's what I was doing. Yeah, the other day I was like, oh. I am a presenter kind of thing. Okay. But like when I went into actually physically speaking it's because I didn't have enough team and I was like, oh shit, I'll do it. It wasn't planned. So I never, ever visualized myself on screen, really.
1: Was there anything else that you had aspirations around apart from those three that you said as a child that hasn't come through yet? I'm just curious, like, you know, since like, it wasn't coming, coming into reality so quickly, am like, what other dreams did you have? I call like...
0: No, the only thing I was saying is like, yeah, I want to be a millionaire, but you know, that's some fluff talk. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, if the government doesn't blow us up, I'd, what I'm trying not to speak into existence is that the minute my banks, and by the way, it's not materialism, it's not the materialism, capitalism of it all. It's about having enough money to survive and my family survive and my friends to survive. So that's what it is. Because the way the state of the world is, it's like you need six zero seven figures to even survive right now. Obviously you can survive on the regular wage, By the work with the space that I'm in, I need more. So that's what it is. It's not just, I want to be a millionaire for fun's sake. However, I keep having this nightmare that the zeros will come in and then the world goes. (laughs)
1: Like, why?
0: (laughs) Because we're governed by fools. We are literally governed by fools. Do not get me started. We are governed by fools. So that's just like, just you're ruining it. Like I'm on such a, I'm enjoying the path. I'm enjoying, even though it's hard, I'm enjoying this evolution and development of my life and my career and what everyone's doing. Everyone's coming together. Everything's happening so well. But then on the flip side, you've got the governments who are just like, we're bored. We're now going to do land, scramble and war to mess up your lives even further and not pay NHS staff properly. Like what the hell? So it's just the juxtaposition of advancement yet regression in the same bag is confusing and stressful. But no, Anything else? No. No. I mean, I do have dreams of having a hair salon. I suppose that was always my thing, but that I'd have to be like a figurehead and it will be a franchise or something like that. I had a dream of doing like a natural hair salon with a restaurant attached to it and a creche. Wow. You know, if all else fails, that's what I'm going to
1: do. I like the idea though. Actually, yeah. especially when women can come in with their children, children can go and play, they can get your hair done, get some food.
0: Yeah. In the years of working in a salon, that was literally what I understood. It's like you need, especially if you're there for the day, if you're having a long process, your kids need to be taken care of and you get hungry. We need to combine. It needs to be a big compound that does all of that.
1: That's a good idea. That's a really, really good idea. Does yeah. your daughter have any aspirations to do what you do?
0: She's annoying. She doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't. Like she's a nurse. She's a qualified nurse. She just graduated and she's got her first job at a hospital. She's a pediatric nurse. However, I have roped her in and at times, you know, she's done a bit of red carpet presenting for me. She's good at it as well. She's very good. She's also, she's been actually an example of someone who's known what they wanted to do. Or the seed was planted and she followed with that seed because she's always a really good of kids. So we always said that, you know, you're going to work with kids. You're going to work with kids and it's manifested and she's a pediatric nurse now, and she is genuinely really good with kids, but she, you know, dad's got a creative, I'm a creative and definitely being around what I do and then being around what her father does. She kind of has, she was saying to me, yeah, Mum, I really want to get into doing something entrepreneurial. And I was like, cool, you've got your degree now. You've got, you know, as every African parent, you've got your degree, you've got your qualifications, you can explore the fancy stuff. I don't know what will happen. She does have a creative gene, but yeah, she's not following me just yet. We'll see what happens. Well,
1: the representation is there. The light is there. And I think even you having that space of, you know, you can do what you do is completely up to you. It's your life to live. And you're not restricted to holding the back is also quite good to have as a parent. And to know as a child, you've got that freedom to explore, much like you did. Yeah.
0: I definitely let her do that to an extent. I mean, she can't <laughs> waffle through life, but... Because, I mean, if she, was, if she was like me and didn't know what to do, then I would have definitely put her on to doing something like this. But I, I, like I said, it's about what you're good at and what you want to do because there's no point in everything else is just stress. We need minimum stress. And like I said, in a world that's absolutely governed by fools, you need to have your little safe haven and comfort. And, be, and that's your day-to-day and your network, your close network. So you need to have minimum stress.
1: I was asked how do you define leadership
0: i don't know <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i'm a leader don't
1: you don't know if you're a leader
0: no yeah because it's i don't know what context you mean what any
1: context there is no there is no context for leadership it's just leadership how do you see leadership?
0: leadership is just being fair being authoritative direct being authoritative but being fair being clear in your Mission, but being fair, I think, and honest. I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know because I don't know.
1: Do you see yourself as a leader?
0: No, not like, because leaders like follow the leader. Not that. I'm definitely in a space where I can, I don't know. I'm a leader. Okay. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) And I'm not being, I'm not even trying to be like, oh, no, I'm not a leader. And really, I know that I am. I'm genuinely like, what is a leader? Like I've created a platform that people look towards and I want it to be the leading platform. Mm-hmm. So my platform, I want to be a leader mm-hmm. and leading in the space where we're showcasing the brilliant work that black creators are doing as the person who created it. Then I'm a the leader in that respect, but I'm not the leader. It's not about me. It's about the platform because I'm my platform shit. Then I could be a leader. I'm not leading anything, just people leading people to hell. So it needs to be to my platform is the leader. I want to be a leader. Me, driving it, I want to be cognizant, healthy, sensible, and in a good space to continue to drive it. So I'm a driver, not a leader. I'm a driver, even though I don't drive in the real world. I cannot drive physically, but I think I'm a driver in business. Is there
1: there distinction between a driver and a leader.
0: Yes, for me, there is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but at home, as a, mother you're a leader
0: yeah okay i'm a Mum, yeah
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: a leader is just such a like a leader what does that even really what does it mean to you what is a leader
1: for me leading leadership for me is about authenticity so it's about how i show up in my day-to-day lives how do i lead myself and the way that i carry myself conversations i have the work that i do the values that i aspire to how do i lead my family that's important to me and then goes back into the work. How do I show up in the world as well? So for me, that's what leadership's around. It's around me. Do I have a vision around things I'm trying to do? Yes. Am I putting that in the world? Yes. Are there people who I'm in charge of in a sense? Yes. Are there people who are looking to me and I'm leading them with the way that I carry myself? Yeah. So that's why I said there's so many different elements to it. That's why it was never a a business context or a home context or whatever. For me, it starts as an individual. How do I lead myself? You know, what I mean, like you talking in about how from data is like, you know, what I want to feed my curiosity. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I'm going to go in that direction. I'm going to do hairdressing. I'm going to make the difference. I'm going to recognize and hold some of the truths about me that could be issues that are showing up in business or home. I'm going to identify things and ways how I want to parent. All that for me is all self-leadership because that's you holding yourself up and be like, okay, how am I showing up? How am I making decisions? What's influenced those decisions? How do I want to make a difference in the industry? Because I looked around, there was nothing there. So actually I want to create something. You didn't do it because you want accolades. You do it because you want to make a difference. That, all of that for me compasses as leaders. That's why I call this everyday leadership because people so easily go to the job or well, i'm like nah like how are you how are you how are you leading yourself day-to-day because actually how aqua leads herself day-to-day is why we have Bridge breakfast
0: that was in you i think you said that makes sense <laughs> you did not need me to answer it you said it <laughs> Yeah, because you don't. You don't. Wait, I suppose not everyone wakes up and thinks they're a leader every day. In that respect, it's true. As you're recounting it to me, then it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Because leadership does think you just think leader, and even if it is in the house or whatever, you just think leader, and it's not that. Because especially if you don't see yourself as in that position, it's very hard to explain that or see it in the day to day minutia of the day. As a leader in my home, yeah, for sure, I carry myself in a way that my daughter can. My thing was my daughter's always got to look to me with favour, not like any sadness, any upset any distress she needs to look to me as someone that she will aspire to be like or is very inspired by and has fond memories of me not like oh my god what the hell did i grow up around so that's it's leadership okay whatever i do to make sure that she feels like that and my family and stuff like that
1: i know what you do with tbb which is amazing. Yeah. So all that information around TVB, the, in fact, you just relaunched one of the elements, didn't you? You want to talk about that? Yeah.
0: The British blacklist itself was, is, was as it launched was a database as it was. And then I had the editorial, but I've kind of split it out now. So you've got the blacklisted database, which is a talent database for everybody who works in screen, stage, literature, and sound in front of behind the scenes as well. So again, it's just, it's just a way for people to find talent. Because the industry is always like we can't find this black this and black black blah blah. They don't exist. They do. So I'm encouraging everybody to sign up. It's very frustrating when you launch something and it's it's you know it's like it's a develop it's a work in progress. There's that thing of it being absolutely ready, which it never is, and it's not in completely ready. But I thought it needs to be out there so people can use it, feedback what works, what makes sense, what doesn't, because it's an evolving, growing thing. So yeah, it launched last week, and just having getting people to sign up and create their profiles completely because what i'm finding are people i'm going to cast everybody people that are signing up and just putting a picture and not putting in the information an empty profile is useless the whole point is for people to be able to see what you do and say yep yeah, on that i want to hire them and contact you to guys to work so it's about getting you work and stuff like that so when you sign up please fill as much of the profile as you can because then it just helps you and helps the business grow as well so yeah and then continuing with the uh, Editorial side of things, news reviews and interviews, all that type of stuff going on. Working towards our second British Blacklist lunch, which took place during London Film Festival last year. Our first one, um, and we're ten years to this year, so it'll be a bit of a more swankier affair. Working on that and a few other things as well.
1: Any ideas of any visions of writing a book?
0: No, not yeah. I mean, I always I find that people that write books quite early. Like, why are you doing that? I wanted to be oh. I wanted to be an author. Shit, hmm. yes. I always wanted to be an author. Literally, you have always wanted to be an author. <laughs> I about that,
1: that's why I asked the
0: question. <laughs> I forgot because you know, there's so many things I forget. I'm old now, you know. I forget what I wanted to do as a child. It's, all those memories are slipping away from me. I always wanted to write a book because I was books were my thing. Actually, before anything, I was a Reading from, yeah, i read, I read, I read a lot. And no, I say read because now life doesn't let me read the way I used to. And I'm very sad because books are my thing. So yeah, books, I always write a book. But I, I, to write like a, hero oh, this is a life story. Nah, if I was to write a book, it'd be fictional mm. and it'll probably turn into a film now. So yeah, screenwriting will be my next venture.
1: What genre, I'm just curious.
0: I don't know yet. Of course I know, but it's not over. <laughs> oh, yeah, thought, um, I've got a, a coming of age because I just think there's not enough black girl coming. There's not a black girl coming of age story from the UK at all, and I think that's diabolical. So the first thing I want to work on. I had two. I had one based on my time as and um, being fostered. I had that. So I wrote that script years ago. Terrible, but it was. I re- I did write it. Um, and then if you've watched Farming and the Last Tree. Adewale's Farming and Shalamu's The Last Tree they touch on those Farming a lot. is a lot more in depth and Sholamu's Last Tree kind of goes around it those are two stories that deal with that narrative very well and I had something like that and then yeah I've got coming of age story but I don't know when it will happen it will happen when it happens
1: I look forward to seeing it happen
0: because
1: <laughs> mm, I'm sure I'm, I know it will that's going to happen the zeros are going to happen you know you say it and you shall be done and I have faith I, I have faith done. in you I appreciate you. I appreciate this interview. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I always think it's important to give people their flowers while they do amazing work. So that's why I'm glad that you finally came on and we could have this amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. I want flowers. I
0: will send you some proper flowers. Thank you. I will send you
1: some proper flowers.
0: (laughs) Please don't send flowers Because they die And my, I've got that But my mum is always like Please what is this flowers Don't buy me flowers When we used to try And do that for Mother's Day Don't buy me flowers they yeah. just, just. <laughs> Sorry, no. And I love I wish I lived in a world Where I could have flowers like. But then I need a gardener To like r- routinely Upgrade them I don't ever see Dead flowers in my house So no I'm joking But thank you for my flowers My virtual flowers I appreciate
1: it No problem at all This is Everyday Leadership And we'll see you next week